Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 77. By the second half of 1984, the Joint Monitoring Commission was virtually on its last legs, and the SADF Special Forces were involved in a number of missions, both by sea and across the cut line. The first we're going to hear about was an audacious plan to blow up Angolan Railway, rolling stock, including locomotives at the shunting yard at Lobito in Benguela province, on the Atlantic coast north of the Katumbele estuary. If you travel there now, it's a beautiful beach. Palm trees sway in the breeze. Small fishing boats come and go. The sea is an azure turquoise. Forty years ago, it was a crucial hub in the MPLA's infrastructure. After 1974, diesel-electric locomotives were used to ferry heavy weapons and material between Lobito and Huambo to the east, and that was on the main route towards Zambia and southern Congo. By 1984, this railway line had been out of operation for at least six years because of UNITA's sabotage, but the movement of war material between Lobitu and Huambo was important to Fapla. Twenty-two of the locomotives were GEU-20Cs from the United States, and in 1983, another 12 had made their way there from Brazil. Because the South African railways used the same locomotives, it meant the Rekis could practice on the same machines. The initial idea was for the Rekis to strike in February 1984. This was shelved, and the SADF then resurrected the plan in September and named it Operation Equator. They wanted to destroy both the locomotives in the shunting yard and the railway line, but this meant two raiding teams would be needed. It was a job for one Rekki, and Colonel Andre Bespier was appointed as overall commander, and Captain Krubert Nell was appointed for Rekki boat commander. The strategy when it came to damaging these locomotives was interesting. The plan called for the same part to be destroyed on all the machines, which meant they could not cannibalize them and repair them. And the most effective object on these locomotives to put out of action was the bell housing of the generator, which would also destroy the dynamo wiring. The boffins got to work and designed a Woodcock 2 mine housed in aluminium. Four strong magnets would fix this to the target, along with a mercury motion sensor and a timing mechanism. The railway line was going to be blown up using PIC-2 mines with delayed settings of more than seven days and a self-destruct setting of 92 days. The explosive was a slurry that hardened when exposed to air. This meant they could bury the explosive alongside the line, making it very difficult to find. It was a form of IED. A passing locomotive would trigger the device and it would explode a second or two after sensing the weight. The delay was important. UNITA had been blowing up Angolan rolling stock and Fapla now used a ballast-filled wagon ahead of the locomotives so that it would protect the locomotive from an immediate blast. In overall command of the mission was Captain Dan van Sale, who headed up the 12 raiders targeting the locomotives. Captain J.C. Erasmus led the team of eight who were tasked with mining the railway line. Two strike craft would insert the Rekis, the SAS Oswald Piro under Commander Jock Deacon and the SAS Franz Erasmus under Lieutenant Commander Brian Duncan. The SAS Tafelberg research ship would steam about in the vicinity as maritime backup. The 26th of September was chosen as D-night, with the 27th as backup if weather or other factors caused a delay. After all the activities recently, the MPLA in Angola was monitoring the South African naval movements closely, along with the Russians, who obviously had a higher surveillance capability. Most of the loading and movement was going to take place at night to try and throw the enemy off scent. 
All comms during the mission would be carried out on the hopper radios and a whole new set of codes were instituted. So on the 20th of September 1984, one recce moved from Durban to Donkerhut and the two strike craft met them there. They loaded the food and other material onto the boats and on the 22nd of September they headed off on their mission at 10pm. The strike craft arrived off Lobito at 1900 hours on the 26th of September and began their run-in. They had set up a boxed area which was five nautical miles wide along the beach from west of the Katumbela River mouth. All the activity would take place in this box. At 2000 hours 15, the France Erasmus disgorged the two Barracuda small boats. The first boat from the France Erasmus carried a recon team, while boat two was their fire support. A four-recce swimmer on each boat secured the landing, and the three-man teams crept ashore. The beach was deserted, but luckily footprints could be seen running at all angles. This meant their landing would be harder to detect. They walked south and found a grove of palm trees and a small canal that ran out to sea. This was excellent cover, and the reconnaissance team used a footpath alongside to traverse the railway line, then a tarred road. It was the main lobito Benguela road, which the SADF had travelled along in 1976 during Operation Savannah. The traffic was heavy. All sorts of vehicles, including water tankers and other military trucks, were hustling past, so the recon team lay low for a few minutes. Then they used a gap in the traffic to get across the road. From there, they walked another two or three kilometres. It was just after midnight that they realised they had headed the wrong way and returned to the boats. But they were pretty sure about the location of the railway line and the best spot to lay their mine. At 0215, they were back on board the strike craft. Meanwhile, the Oswald Piro had headed northwest of this position and dropped off the second recon team which headed to the shunting yard and railway depot at 21 hours 15. They used the same tactic, one boat with recon team and one with fire team support. It was easier for them to spot their points of interest, the Barracuda pilots using the lights on a grain elevator inside Lobito Harbour as a reference. Then an odd incident took place. As they slowly approached the beach, they saw around 200 people sitting in an open-air cinema. Most of the cinema goers were in uniform. The recon team waited in the dark out to sea, watching what happened. Eventually, at 2300 hours 25, the movie ended and the crowd dispersed. The Rickies headed towards shore. They were going to land 800 meters south of the shunting yard, close to the main rail depot. Two swimmers first slipped overboard to check the beach, and they reported that it was a steep landing with swells over 1.5 meters, so the teams went in wet. One of the radios was damaged, but they decided to keep going. Soon, they stopped again. There were six military vehicles parked nearby, and a small group of soldiers were enjoying a night barbecue on the beach. The South Africans were too far south anyway, so they returned to the beach, called the Barracudas back, swam out to them, then shifted position. By now, it was 0100 hours 10. The swimmers found a beach further north that appeared to be isolated and managed to land. But now they were close to blocks of flats. So far, however, they hadn't been spotted, although the latest position was a little more dodgy. Dogs began to bark, but the reckeys continued moving through the dark to the shunting yard. After a few minutes, they approached the locomotive sheds. It was at that moment that an old man popped up five meters away, a security guard. All the raiders were covered in black as beautiful. The old man was obviously half asleep, and the Portuguese-speaking recce staff sergeant Querosh told him to go back to his bed, and he did. Eventually, they found the locomotives. 
There were at least a dozen parked in the yard, the mother load. Now that they knew the targets were available, the recon teams headed back to the beach, barking dogs heralding their progress, and by 0400 they had joined the Oswald Piro and Franz Erasmus. Both strike craft gunned their engines and raced 100 nautical miles off Lobito. The dual reconnaissance had been successful. It was now time for the main event. The strike craft began making their way back to Lobito at 1400 hours on the 27th of September. They were aiming to arrive offshore well after dark. First in were the two barracudas from the France Erasmus, leaving at 20 hours 15. The raiders spotted soldiers at their first landing, so they shifted the barracudas south. At 21 hours 45, the swimmers checked the beach. Then the raiders waded ashore and entered a sugarcane field which was uncut, offering excellent cover. Suddenly, two civilians emerged from the gloom, but they ignored the reckies, who were dressed in green uniforms and looked like Fapla. Civilians walked on without a word. After passing an informal camp, the raiders finally linked up with the railway line about one kilometre south of Lobito Airfield. It was now 2,300 hours. Then the mine-laying team split up, carrying their pick mines of slurry explosives. 20 kilograms in total was to be poured into four different holes they dug alongside the line, about 300 metres apart, over about one kilometre. The delays were set at 21, 40 and 60 days, but they were done by 0100 hours, and after clearing their footprints from the zone, they headed back to the beach. The pickup point had to be changed because now there were two vehicles nearby, and as one of the wreckies waded out to the barracuda, he suddenly disappeared from view. Corporal Mars had hit a deep spot. Luckily, his flailing hand was spotted and he was dragged onto the boat. They were back on board the France Erasmus at 0315. All was well. The railway line operation was a success. But what had happened to the other raiding party tasked with mining the locomotives? The Rikis from the Oswald Piro had landed just before midnight because they were to wade ashore much closer to the town itself. Their landing was uneventful, and they separated into two four-man teams at 0100 and moved quietly up a small street towards the southern corner of a shunting yard. Moments later, a car switched on its lights. They were all silhouetted, but the vehicle did a U-turn and headed south. Then moments later, a local man wandered up to the two groups of wreckies, but just ignored them and walked on by. This probably saved his life. The wreckies entered the shunting yard, cutting across open ground towards the locomotive sheds. The same barking dog interrupted their movements once more, but this time the old man didn't bother to pop out. He probably saw them from wherever he was and decided it was the same bunch from the previous night. By 0135 they had orientated themselves and began placing the mines on the locomotives. There were 35 of these valuable machines, and the Reckies now had the task of deciding which were operational and which weren't. Some were rusted and their windows were broken, Eventually, 20 were identified as functional. They were all the GE U-20Cs. 16 were mined, while two other charges were placed on nearby diesel tanks. These would explode and burn, and then damage smaller shunting locomotives, as well as other equipment nearby. After removing all the pins by 0210, they left a few bits of UNITA material about and headed back to the beach. The eight raiders had to swim out to the barracudas because of the heavy sea, and by 0320, everyone was back on board the strike craft. The two strike craft headed back out to sea, and at 0442, the Reckies, who were looking back towards Lobito, 
saw the first flashes of the shunting yard going up in flames. By the 1st of October, the strike craft were back at Saldana Bay. One recce was also back in Durban shortly afterwards. The operation was one of the more successful of recent times. The MPLA believed it was UNITA who'd blown up their 16 locomotives, and the shunting yard was a shambles. It's believed no one died in the blasts. The aim, after all, was to destroy equipment. The locomotives were unserviceable and could not be used to carry goods between Lobito and Huambo. While all of this was going on, remember, the SADF was supposedly still working closely with FAPLA in the Joint Monitoring Commission, which was tasked with ensuring that southern Angola was empty of Swapu. This was part of some kind of pre-peace initiative, but both the Angolans and the South Africans were not applying themselves to the process with any degree of honesty. Later, Pretoria would claim that only the Angolans could be blamed for the collapse of the JMC, but this is disingenuous. It was not in Pretoria's interest right now to work towards Namibian peace either. The reason is this. Back in South Africa, the ANC's unofficial internal ally, the United Democratic Front, had been formed and protests in the country's black townships had exploded into violence. P.W. Bota's government was convinced that only a military option could save the country from the ANC, and the security forces were expanding their power. They also feared that if Namibia achieved independence, Swapo would support the ANC from next door. This was not a moment to start talking peace. The entire political strategy unfolding in the south precluded any sort of ceasefire in Angola. The ANC, furthermore, was intensifying its bombing campaigns on South African civilians as well as security force infrastructure. It had already bombed the SA Air Force headquarters in Pretoria's Church Street in 1983, killing 19 people and injuring 217. The level of tit-for-tat violence was spiralling back home, and the SADF leadership became more hard-line when it viewed actions in southern Angola. The gloves had come off. It was at this time that 3-2 Company received an interesting set of orders. The JMC initiative was floundering and it was clear that Swapo was capitalizing on the agreement negotiated by Pretoria and Luanda. They were infiltrating what was supposed to be a free zone in southern Angola, free of armed insurgents. As there was no obvious way to deal with this openly, Pretoria launched a series of clandestine steps to stop Swapo from re-establishing themselves in Fapla's areas. This meant 3-2 Battalion would now dress and operate like UNITA under a new banner called 154 Battalion. Major Jan Hochart, who was 2IC at 3-2 Battalion, was tasked along with Commandant Johan Skutter of military intelligence to set up this new initiative. They needed equipment, uniforms, arms, ammunition. Both then travelled to depots controlled by the Chief of Staff Intelligence in Pretoria and selected T-shirts, Russian-made RPD machine guns, uniforms and brand new Feldskuner, which UNITA troops had taken to wearing instead of boots. These are well-known South African shoes. They're made from soft rawhide and we know them as fellies, ideal for use in hot conditions and extremely light and durable. These were shipped off to the operational area near the cutline, along with AK-47s, RPG-7s and Mercedes-Benz and Samuel 100 trucks. No product identified as South African could be used, so Scooter and Hochart dreamed up a new kind of poloni in tubes and pre-cooked maize porridge as well. There was going to be a big problem with the poloni tubes, as you'll hear next episode. Veteran Piet Nortke describes in his book 3-2 Battalion 
that the soldiers earmarked for this special set of operations had no idea what they were in for. Operation Forte was one of the most sensitive ops of the border war, conducted at a time of increasing political tension inside and outside South Africa. Fewer than half a dozen people knew what was going on. The equipment was hidden inside the CSI Storn Rundu military base so that prying eyes couldn't spot the odd outfits and arms. Everything began to roll on September 1st, 1984. Echo Company Commander Lieutenant Neil Walker, Foxtrot was headed up by Captain Button Haynes, Golf under Captain Fred Turner, and a support company under Sergeant Major Mike Rogers were quietly ferried from the 3-2 Buffalo base to Rundu. There, they found a bunch of special vehicles hidden under tarpaulins and cargo nets. 3-2-O-C, Colonel Eddie Fulion and Sergeant Major Fanyu Bear led the strange convoy west out of the base towards Amuni. The troops looked around at their fellow soldiers and all believed they were heading off to Ilundu for the normal deployment into Angola, or perhaps they were going to patrol the cutline. That night, they rested at the old Nepara base, then moved out at dawn on the 2nd of September to Mpungu, which was right on the cutline. They stopped there once more, awaiting spares for the trucks, which were choppered in, and Major Jan van der Feyfer, logistics officer, stepped off the pumas. He didn't look himself, mainly because he'd been forced to shave off his significant moustache and had black as beautiful smeared across his face, his arms, and in fact, anywhere his skin showed. This was not normal procedure for a logistics senior officer. Furthermore, he was dressed in civvies or civilian clothes, and drew a few quizzical stares. What was going on? The convoy took off again, heading north to cross the cutline instead of turning further west to Amauni, and on a sandy track that hadn't been touched for months. The Mercedes-Benz tracks bogged down regularly, but they managed eventually to reach the border. This is traditionally where SADF troops would receive their final briefing. Colonel Eddie Fulion called the officers and NCOs together and broke the news. We are UNITA now, he said. We have to start thinking and acting like UNITA, and since they have no sense of time, the watchword is KUSASA, which is fanagalo for tomorrow. You heard last episode how the Rekis had already been operating as SWABU with turn SWABU insurgents. Now 3-2 was pretending to be UNITA. They were going to head into Angola along a 25-kilometer stretch of uncharted territory without landmarks, traveling in a northeast direction towards a small village called Katwitwi. That's on the Kubanga River, south of a town called Savati. And it was when the sun set that night that the men of this operation heard what the true nature of their mission was. They were going to hunt Swabu down quite far into Angola, pretending to be UNITA. It was an uncomfortable silence that descended on the camp that night. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase the series' visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, first page. Thank you.